The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Looks like he struggled. Unsuccessfully. Here, you see that? It's a needle mark from a syringe. Probably was injected with something that stopped his heart. I'll run toxicology. As soon as I can pinpoint a COD, I'll give you a call. Great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Hey. You know who kills with syringes? Mad doctors and B-movie Nazis. Why not just use a gun? Guns are loud. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, July 1st, 2021. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Wow. What a perfect way to describe the people who are today locking down our freedoms in preparation for their great reset. Mad doctors and B-movie Nazis. Perfect. Describes them perfectly. You know, I was inspired to approach this week's subject thanks to the compelling headline on Canada Poly's June 24th show, hosted by Mark Paralavos. How can you fight for freedom if you can't even conceptualize it? You know, that's a profound question. As is the corollary to that question, how can you fight against tyranny if you can't even conceptualize it? Sad fact is, too many people find themselves in each of those camps. So, before attempting to address either question, conceptualize this. You can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. You can hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archive broadcasts. And as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. So yes, we are indeed being ruled by mad doctors and B-movie Nazis, and they are using syringes to rule, control, and eliminate us. And if that sounds like something out of a science fiction book to you, you are not paying attention to what's going on. The mad doctors are forcing us into a healthcare tyranny, while the B-movie Nazis, whether they're Joe Biden, Justin Trudeau, Doug Ford, etc., are the fascist enablers, giving the mad doctors total control over our individual lives. That's what's been going on for the past year and a half. None of their actions have anything to do with health care or medicine. It is an entirely 100% political agenda, long planned for in advance, that we are seeing played out on the world stage. And yet, still there are millions who are completely oblivious to a direct attack on their freedom, even though they are standing in the middle of that world stage. Which again begs the question, how can you fight for freedom if you can't even conceptualize it? How can you fight against tyranny if you can't conceptualize it? Now, the thing that grabbed me about that title was that word conceptualize, because to conceptualize something, I believe transcends the mere description or definition of that thing, whatever it might be. For example, I could define or describe a car or a truck in a myriad of ways, but to those who've never seen a car or a truck, conceptualizing my description is an entirely different challenge. In fact, when the automobile was first introduced 
to Western civilization, it had to be referred to as a horseless carriage. And that's when people could actually conceptualize it, given their personal experience with having actually seen or ridden in a horse-drawn carriage. That was the only thing they could compare it to. So my point is that knowing about something and conceptualizing that something are two different things. Conceptualizing, I think, is a deeper, a deeper meaning. It, it's something that you experience. And when the thing you're talking about is not a physical object like a car, but an abstraction like freedom or like tyranny, surprisingly, the same principle applies, but is experienced or conceptualized in an entirely different context. Have you ever wondered why so many of the people most vigorously resisting the lockdowns come from Eastern Europe and other jurisdictions where state controls over private choices are the norm? That's because this group of people is far more able to conceptualize tyranny than are people who have never truly experienced it before. But on the freedom side of the experience, we have a very strange anomaly or paradox. Even many people who live within a relatively free society are unable to conceptualize that freedom. But you know when they become aware of it or conscious of it? When it's suddenly denied them. Ironically, mostly it's in its absence that freedom is even conceptualized. But astoundingly, there are millions who even having experienced freedom and then having it denied them still are unable to conceptualize the freedom they've lost or the tyranny that has descended upon them. Now I should point out that July 1st is Canada Day and for all intents and purposes this year's Canada Day has all but been cancelled along with its culture being cancelled in tandem. And I know there's some people out there doing their own celebrations but the official ones have all been shut down as much as possible. And maybe that's a good thing, because it signifies that Canada is now a tyranny and no longer anything that deserves celebration. So, you know, I, I just can't help but comment on listener Trevor D's feedback of Wednesday, June 23rd, when he sent me this, quote, My four-foot by six-foot Canadian flag arrived today in the post. I bought the flag from Forest City Surplus, made in China, end quote. <laughs> well, talk about symbolism on top of symbolism. Today's Canada might better be called Chinada, for more reasons and with more justification than I care to mention on today's show. So, where can I begin in addressing so profound a challenge, you know, limited as I am within this media that leaves words and concepts as my only tool to create some kind of concept of both freedom and tyranny in a person's mind? much in the same way as, say, the horseless carriage description assisted those who have never seen an automobile. I'm not sure if it's the same task, because right now, let's be clear, the Canadians are living under tyranny. 100% tyranny. 0% freedom. And this is no gradual process, as so many would like to believe. You can't say that we're fast losing our freedoms or that this is another step on the road to tyranny. I'm so tired of hearing those kinds of comments. Just as with left and right, tyranny and freedom are binary absolutes, and there's no middle of the road or centrist position with regard to defining either concept. There are no degrees of freedom, even though there are a myriad of scales and measurements designed mostly by economists regarding the listing of a pluralistic number of freedoms, S with an S on the end. But freedom is not listed in the plural with an S on the end of it. You either have freedom or you don't have freedom. 
This is not to say that there are no distinctions between a tyranny that, that say, only imprisons or fines its political prisoners or opponents versus one that unerringly executes them without due process. But tyranny is tyranny. And the mere fact that a particular dictator chooses not to exercise his or her license to kill does not make one free while still able to walk about freely by permission of that dictator. So let's begin with tyranny. And we must begin by bearing in mind that tyranny is not a system of government, but a social and political condition that arises as a consequence of that government, as is freedom itself. Freedom is a condition. It's not a thing. Neither of them are things. They are conditions, and being conditions, people can easily adjust and adapt to them without even being aware of it until that condition somehow arbitrarily interferes with some free action that any particular individual might want to take. It's just like a health condition, right? People adapt to their health conditions until they can't. In China, for example, whether willingly or not, over a billion people live under the condition of tyranny, and each of them experiences or conceptualizes their tyranny in differing ways, depending on how that tyranny directly affects their lives, which might be different from place to place or from person to person. That's what makes the task so difficult. In trying to conceptualize tyranny, there are so many ways to experience or witness it, it boggles the mind. For example, in my own way of looking at it, the growing poverty we can see in our streets are a consequence of tyranny. You know, as Ayn Rand so succinctly once explained, the difference between what has been called the have and the have-not nations is that what the have-not nations do not have is freedom. Like tyranny itself, poverty is a condition perpetuated by laws and rules and regulations that do not permit individuals on a grand scale to freely take the actions that could carry them out of their poverty. A writer or public speaker, for example, might experience tyranny because free speech is non-existent, while on the other side of that coin is the recipient of a given message, the person who would like to hear or read about something he is prevented from doing because of censorship. Sound like a familiar condition? We have it all around us. But the person who neither cares to express himself, nor inform himself, nor wish to entertain any differing view is not affected by censorship. He doesn't care. And of course, imprisonment without due course or cause is always a definite sign of tyranny. And it is not the imprisonment or confinement itself, but the fact that it is even possible that defines the tyranny. As long as any government is even in a position to ever lock down people in their homes and forcibly close businesses for whatever reason they might imagine, even if those things are not being done at a particular point in time, as long as the state has the power to do it, we are living in a tyranny. And we must take measures to make sure that this never happens again. And of course, restrictions on our freedom of association, with all of the other ridiculous rules outlining how many can congregate in a given place or at a given time, is pure tyranny, through and through. Who the hell ever thought that we would be living under such conditions. So before we continue, coming up next is an individual I have actually not featured on the show, even though I have to guiltily admit I begin most days by listening to his seven days a week daily coverage of the current news, mostly with a Canadian spin. The show is called Canada Polly, 
and is hosted by a fellow named Mark Paralavos, who simply reviews the daily news over the period of about an hour each day by going through various selected items on his computer screen and then making comments on them. Very informative, doesn't get into them all in too much depth, but he makes you aware of what is happening on a day-to-day basis. And I'll tell you, after I listen to him, I hear more news in a given day than I can read in all the newspapers in a given year, especially about this country, Canada. His YouTube channel has recently been shut down permanently, so he must be doing something right. So you'll have to find him on one of his alternative platforms. But here are a few samples from his June 24th show, the one about... How can you fight for freedom if you can't even conceptualize it? Really, there's so much going on in Canadian politics. Every single day there has new advancements, new things happening. I'll tell you about some stuff that's already being introduced that that is just shocking on the tail of of what's been introduced so far. Um, What's already happened? They've used this crisis since COVID. Every day brings more unbelievable overreach from this government at all levels it's really really quite something and and not a good something it's very very bad very very bad indeed the people in office are using this crisis to push UN agenda it's not Canadians agenda it's not taxpayer influenced agenda in fact they don't care what we think they care what the UN thinks they want to have UN compliant laws within Canada because we're a UN province Global governance, everyone. This is what's happening. Anyway, Mike, Mark Friesen says, bills being pushed through just, just under COVID alone. C6, conversion therapy, UN compliant. C7, euthanasia, UN compliant. C10, C10, censorship, UN compliant. C12, net zero, UN compliant. C15, UN drip, UN compliant. C273, universal basic income, UN compliant. Ordering council, gun grab, UN compliant. How do you like global governance so far? Michael Chong asks a very, very pertinent question. Mr. Speaker, the pandemic has laid bare the state of our institutions. There is no governor general because of scandal. Eight senior leaders of the armed forces have resigned or been forced out. We have military procurement systems that cannot procure, and we have payroll systems that cannot pay. We have a government that thought it appropriate a year ago to introduce legislation that would have suspended the power of Parliament over taxation and spending until the end of this calendar year. A government that prorogued Parliament to shut down committee investigations. A government that continues to defy four orders of this House and its committee to hand over documents related to serious breaches at the Winnipeg Lab that is now preventing this Parliament from doing its job. The government is in contempt of Parliament. The government does not deserve another mandate. The government must go. Yeah, I think he's exactly right. I think he's exactly right. When, when we've got all of these people willing to protect the bad policies that got us into the, the mess that we're currently in, then I, I don't see a path to fixing, to fixing this, right? Everything over the last 15 months needs to be examined with a fine tooth comb. Everything, you can't just say, you know what? We can't look at that, that's in the past. And whatever happened, happened, and here we are now. But that's what they're, they're going to try and push through. They're going to get to September, lock us down again, and they're going to try and push this through, go through an election, and so on. And as soon as you hit an election, it validates it. If Trudeau wins an election here, it validates everything that he's done. And he comes back and he pushes through. It'll be a majority, 
and he'll come back and he'll push through the the speech the speech the the awful speech garbage that he wants to pass. He will. That's. I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I hope. I hope it all falls down like a ton of bricks. I hope it all collapses. House of cards. The whole thing. I hope it all crashes down. Not our economy. I don't want that. I like to eat, right? But like, this this farce can't continue. There's something wrong, and a lot of people are seeing there's something wrong, and it cannot continue. Would you like a coffee, Bernard? Oh, uh, thank you very oh, much. Pull up a chair. George, bring a coffee, would you? Mm. Well, Bernard, how do you feel about having a new minister? Uh, do you mean he's... Uh... No, no, Sir Humphrey is merely <laughs> conjecturing. Ah, uh, well, of course, I'd be very sorry. Uh, why, uh, wouldn't you? Well, of course not. But the minister's just starting to get a grip on the job. Exactly. Ministers with a grip on the job are a bit of a nuisance, you know. They argue. But all ministers argue. Yes, but if they've got a grip on the job, there's a real danger that they might be right. <laughs> one tells them that something is impossible, and they dig out an old paper in which one had said it was easy. Very tedious. <laughs> the moment they've gone, one can wipe the slate clean and start again with a new boy. Yeah. Wonderful things, reshuffles. <laughs> and prime ministers like them too. Fresh, decisive, keeps everyone on the hop. It's only ministers who panic about them. Uh, wouldn't it be interesting if ministers were fixed and permanent secretaries were shuffled around? <laughs> <laughs> that, Bernard, would strike at the very heart of the system that has made Britain what she is today. Power goes with permanence. Impermanence is impotence. And rotation is castration. <laughs> it's time they all had a little spin. Oh, okay. uh, yes, but uh, surely in a democracy... Thank you, Bernard, that'll be all. <laughs> Um, so do you remember, just quick, let's go back in time very, very quickly. Do you remember at the beginning when they said, AstraZeneca is safe? And then they said, AstraZeneca may have safety signals, right? Under 65 shouldn't get it. And then they said, no, it's safe. And then they said, wait, under 50 shouldn't get it. And then they said, no, it's safe. And now we're not using AstraZeneca at all because it's not safe because it caused blood clots, right? And it wasn't safe at the beginning and wasn't safe now, right? It wasn't safe then and it's not safe now. And do you notice that same pattern repeating now with Pfizer and Moderna, right? How long before we say, you know what? This heart condition thing, not so good. How, how long? Do you think like quick or, or, or much slower? I don't know. I'm very, very, I'm not sure because I think that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're hiding it. They don't care. They don't give a shit. They don't give a shit. They didn't care. COVID-19. They, they put COVID-19 patients into old folks' homes. They withheld water and bathing. They withheld Tamiflu. Or, no, maybe not Tamiflu. They gave, I don't know if they withheld Tamiflu. I've seen reports of indications that they weren't order, ordering Tamiflu, but I don't have any firsthand um, accounts of that. But I do have people who have told me that they were giving benzodiazepam, benzos, they can leave you feeling sedated. The most common side effects of ben benzodiazepines include drowsiness, lightheadedness, confusion, unsteadiness, slurred speech, dizziness, muscle weakness, memory problems, constipation, that's not good, nausea, dry mouth, blurred vision, um, 
and then a whole bunch of others. But the point is, it can it can sedate you to a point where breathing becomes uh, difficult. And this is the I've talked about this before: the Liverpool path to um, uh, care path. And people were saying that this is actually killing people. You're just sedating people. And they were using benzos to prevent people from walking around. So they were sedating people to keep them in their uh, in their beds and things. Like they did all these things. So so withholding care from elderly, pumping old age homes with COVID patients, um, sedating people. They did all these things. So so do I think that they will continue? To, like do I think that that now they care about the human health? No, I don't think they give a. Shit. I don't, I don't think they care at all. And I think that if they can fool enough of us that this is important, then they'll keep fooling us until they can't fool us anymore, until they can't deny it anymore. They're denying it everything anyway. They're denying that we can open up. Look at the numbers. Look at, compare them to last year. It's wild. It's absolutely incredible. People are just, we're, we're locked down in the middle of summer for the flu. It's incredible. It's incredible. They don't care. They're not interested in human health. They don't give a shit. Excuse my language. This is Dr. Tam saying uh, vaccines aren't perfect. How, when's the last time? Remember the lockdown of 2016 when we had that bad flu and everybody was locked down in their homes for months on end? Oh, it's terrible, eh? You know, really tough to get through. And then the lockdown of 2017. We've never done this. This is absolute travesty. This is unbelievable that another day goes by that police aren't rest, arresting these people. What is happening? This is unbelievable. Businesses closed at the order of the government. This is a violation of our basic rights. We are being taken over. This is Dr. Tam saying vaccines aren't enough. We will forever be dealing with lockdowns. You've heard that vaccinated people can get infected. Um, so even the most effective vaccines um, are not absolutely perfect. And that it is really important for people to protect each other as well. Many people who have had full doses of vaccine uh, some of our most uh, higher-risk higher peoples are seniors and other high-risk populations that may be the ones uh, um, who, even after vaccination, would um, it would be important for them to also be protected by the uh, protection that the community around them affords. If the vaccine works, why do you need other community people to be vaccinated? Why, does you, why do you need anything else if the vaccine does what it says it's supposed to do? Bull Liars. Absolute liars. And there's, I mean, there's no other word for it. They're just lying. Colin DeMello says, Premier Doug Ford says the government is working on a fast track to step two and three. They're opening step two two days early. Ooh, lucky you, you can get a haircut two days earlier. I mean, what? Tyrannical a-holes. <sighs> <laughs> Tyrannical a-holes is yet another perfect description of our politicians and our healthcare officials. You know, the mad doctors and B-movie Nazis we were talking about. I particularly took note to his opening comment, suggesting that our politicians are using the COVID crisis each day for more unbelievable overreach of government. As soon as you're dealing with anything called an overreach of government, you no longer have any government. You have state control. Now, you might have noticed I inserted an audio bite from the excellent British TV series, Yes, Minister, that power goes with permanence, and impermanence is impotence. Consider the significance of that statement. It is universally true. The power structures we're dealing with today have been with us for many decades, if not longer. 
And it's a reminder that it's not our politicians who actually govern or rule us, but the permanent bureaucrats and officials, all unelected, who really wield the power. That's why politicians all around the world are singing the same tune at the same time. But make no mistake, Canada's parliamentary status is in crisis, just as is the status of the American government under its current unelected resident of the White House. The problem with all forms of democratic government purporting to uphold freedom is that you need honest people to run them and honest people to vote in those elections. People with integrity, but by its very nature, politics attracts the worst among us. People who, broadly speaking, seek the unearned. People who have their own personal agendas. People who know very little or even nothing about the nature of government. People who do not know the true history of their jurisdictions. People who know very little about individual rights or the nature of individual freedom. And on and on I could go. One of the greatest signs of tyranny is a dysfunctional government. A government that does not respond to the citizens' wishes, but which operates on its own agenda, in complete violation of the consent of the governed. You know, I checked into it, and my Oxford Concise Dictionary of Politics defines tyranny as, quote, Generally, the abuse of the state's coercive force in the absence of the rule of law, end quote. Now, what too many forget about the term, the rule of law, is that this statement is not meant to demand obedience to any law that happens to exist, but to distinguish the rule of fixed and understood laws protecting individual rights from the rule of men who pass laws based on their own personal whims and desires. That's what we're seeing today. And as Ayn Rand commented on tyranny, quote, Tyranny is any political system, whether absolute monarchy or fascism or communism, that does not recognize individual rights, which necessarily include property rights. The overthrow of a political system by force is justified only when it is directed against tyranny. It is an act of self-defense against those who rule by force, end quote. And that, more than anything else, explains the continuing lockdowns and controls. I think our politicians know that they've crossed a line that justifies the use of force by the country's citizens against them. They've been using unjustifiable force against us relentlessly over this manufactured COVID crisis for way longer than the two-week flatten-the-curve lockdown that was originally being purported to address a non-existent hospital crisis. To call the Canadian government corrupt would be to give it an unearned compliment. I only wish the government was just corrupt. But we're way past that point. We're getting well into outright criminality, which is a natural component of tyranny. Corruption alone merely indicates dysfunction. A corrupt file on your computer, for example, will prevent that computer or a program on it from running. A corrupt politician, on the other hand, might resort to criminality to prevent you from running, especially for political office, which is what they fear most. As for Rob Ford, the demonic hedgehog, as Alex Jones calls him, who was said he might as well throw yourself off a bridge if you question your public health officials. Well, I don't know if you know this. His brother was a crackhead, and he died suddenly. His wife says they killed him because he was kind of a man of the people yes he was a crackhead 
And yes, he allegedly dealt drugs at one time with, with his brother, who is now Premier of Ontario. Um, who knows what's going on there, but they, they, they're obviously compromised in some way because, I mean, people just don't act like this. Can Canadians are kind of used to it. I hate to say that. Those bizarre non-sequitur answers and the zombie net, we're used to it. We've accepted it for many years. Our leaders just say whatever they want in response to questions. They don't answer questions. They just don't. Has the Prime Minister met with the Ethics Commissioner? And if so, how many times? Very, very I am pleased to work with the Ethics Commissioner uh, and Public Committee's Commissioner uh, to answer any questions she may have. That's what Canadians expect of the Prime Minister, and that's exactly what I'm doing. This Prime Minister said he would stand up every Wednesday and answer every question that's being asked of every member on this side of the House, and he fails to do it. He's been asked five times today, Mr. Speaker, about the Ethics Commissioner. For the sake of my colleagues, I'll ask it again. How many times? 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 And how many times has he met with the Ethics Commissioner? Canadians expect clarity. They expect consistently. And when asked the same question, I will give the same answer. That's what Canadians expect. How many times has the Prime Minister communicated with the Ethics Commissioner? Answer the question. <laughs> will give the same answer. I'm happy to work with the Ethics Commissioner on any questions uh, she may have. And one of the things that I like about uh, Prime Minister's question period is I get to take questions uh, from any MP across the way who has questions, not just the party leaders. But I know that there's some issues in terms of calculation. I'm going to try a different angle. A, was it zero times did he meet with the Ethics Commissioner? B, was it one to five or C, six to ten? Uh, the fact is on this side of the House, we are focused on making investments that are going to make a difference in the lives of Canadians. Prime Minister was getting tired of pretending to answer the question, so he's decided he just won't even pretend to answer it at all. So I'll ask it one more time. His obligation is to be honest with Canadians. What's he covering up here? How many times has he communicated with the Ethics Commissioner? So will the Prime Minister stop hiding the truth and show Canadians what he's actually made of? and tell Canadians how many times he's met with the Ethics Commissioner. I'm uh, happy to work with the Ethics Commissioner to answer any questions that she may have. You write to them, phone them, they don't even reply, ever. So, we're used to being treated like mushrooms fed BS and kept in the dark. And we've gone into like total learned helplessness. Just, we're in uh, the totalitarian womb. My husband is reading a book right now about totalitarianism and the guy who wrote that book is uh it says it's the totalitarian womb after a while people don't want to make their own decisions or take responsibility from themselves for themselves at all so they they come to like totalitarianism it's a nice comfortable uh but albeit meaningless and useless life very well, Sir Humphrey, but let's get down to details. This heated aircraft hangar, for example. Oh, yes, indeed. Now, I do understand the committee's concern, but you see, it does get frightfully cold in Herefordshire in winter, and I'm afraid even civil servants can't work. We are talking work. about civil servants. We are talking about coils of wire with plastic coats to keep them warm. <laughs> oh, well, you see, there was a lot of staff going in and out all the time. Why? Well, taking deliveries, uh, making withdrawals, checking records, 
um, fire inspection, stock taking and well, auditing. Well, they could wear gloves, can't they? Well, they could, but you see, it is a staff welfare policy. Well, I suggest this policy is costing the taxpayer millions of pounds. Nothing to say, Sir Humphrey. Well, it's not for me to comment on government policy. You must ask the minister. But you advise the minister. Well, I'm sure the chairman will agree. I cannot disclose how I advise the minister. The minister is responsible for policy. All right. So we'll ask the minister. Hmm. What about stationary requisition savings? Well, that would have involved placing very considerable government patronage in the hands of junior staff. Considerable government patronage? Buying a packet of paper clips. Well, it's government policy to exercise strict control over the number of people allowed to spend its money, and I'm sure you'll agree that's right and proper. But it's plain common sense to allow people to buy their own paper clips. Government policy has nothing to do with common sense. <laughs> then don't you think it's time the policy was changed? Well, Sir Humphrey... It's not for me to comment on government policy, you must ask the Minister. <laughs> the Minister advises us to ask you. And I'm advising you to ask the Minister. When does this end? As soon as you like. <laughs> well, let's come to the roof garden. Yes, with pleasure. <laughs> this was a part of a wide variety of, of roof insulation schemes which the government was testing in the interest of fuel economy. But 75,000 pounds? Well, it was thought that the sale of flowers and vegetable produce might offset the cost. And did it? No. Then why not abandon the garden? Well, it's there now and um, it does insulate the roof and we aren't building any more. But you wasted 75,000 pounds. Well, it was government policy to test all proposals for fuel saving. At this fantastic waste of the taxpayers' money, you agree the money was wasted? It's not for me to comment on government policy, you must ask the minister. <laughs> Look, Sir Humphrey, whatever we ask the minister, he says is an administrative question for you. And whatever we ask you, you say is a policy question for the minister. Mm -hmm. How do you suggest we find out what's going on? Yes, 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 yes. I do see that there is a real dilemma here in that while it has been government policy to regard policy as the responsibility of ministers and administration as the responsibility of officials, the questions of administrative policy can cause confusion between the policy of administration and the administration's policy. Especially when responsibility for the administration of the policy of administration conflicts or overlaps with responsibility for the policy of the administration of policy. <laughs> Well, that's a load of meaningless dribble, isn't it? It's not for me to comment on government policy, Mr. Minister. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And wasn't the parallel between Justin Trudeau's repeated evasions in Parliament about the ethics commissioner and the yes minister bureaucrat Humphreys, it's not for me to comment, evasions, quite remarkable? Were they both reading from the same script or what? <laughs> Canada's parliamentary system, of course, has a lot in common with the British parliamentary system. Canada's constitution has roots going back to the 13th century, including England's Magna Carta and the first English Parliament of 1275. It is one of the oldest working constitutions in the world, believe it or not. And Canada's constitution is composed of several individual statutes. The patriation of the Canadian Constitution was achieved in 1982 when the British Parliament, with the request and assent of the Canadian Parliament, passed the Canada Act 
1982, which included in its schedules the Constitution Act 1982. In a formal ceremony on Parliament Hill in Ottawa, Queen Elizabeth II proclaimed the Constitution Act into law on April 17, 1982. And of course, the best-known part of Canada's Constitution is the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But first, let's step back into some more recent history, namely two years before Canada's Constitution was patriated. When a new broadsheet newspaper was launched in the City of London called the London Tribune, its publisher was none other than Mark Emery, and I myself was an investor in the paper, which regrettably survived only for a year or so, an experience which in and of itself was a tremendous learning exercise for yours truly. But the first edition of the London Tribune, published on September 4, 1980, the following lead editorial appeared, and I thought I should share it with you. The headline read, This is no proper constitutional debate. And I quote, Citizens of a nation require a constitution that clearly and precisely guarantees them the freedom to pursue their individual lives as their interests see fit. The Trudeau government's attempt, and this is Pierre Trudeau we're talking about here, the Trudeau government's attempt to force a constitution on the country is not really an effort to give its citizens a charter. It is, in fact, more an attempt to consolidate and entrench the rights and powers of government. These disputes between the Premier and the Prime Minister are a fight over which of them we as citizens will be vassals to. The entire constitutional debate, subsidized at tremendous cost by those whom its conclusions will affect the most, has so far been only a political tug-of-war, with the winners receiving the privilege of monitoring and restricting languages, industry, taxes, the media, and all the many other areas of daily life which have come to be intruded upon by governments. This is no proper constitutional debate. Its product cannot be a charter for the citizenry at all. It can only be a dangerous and regressive derivation of the philosophy of rule by divine right. Inevitably, to accommodate so many varied political wills at the constitutional conferences, controls at all levels will increase and be permanently embodied in the final draft. The only proper and noble function of government is to protect its citizens from violence and coercion, from either within or without the community it serves. A democratic government charter must clearly spell out with no room for interpretation that a government exists only by the consent of its citizenry and that it exists to serve the citizenry and not vice versa. In order to entrench this concept, the Constitution must define the rights of individuals and the limits on government in unmistakable terms. The Constitution of the United States clearly stated, for the first and only time in history, that government must never be used as an instrument against its people. In guaranteeing individuals' right to the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, the architects of American independence acknowledged the rights necessary to ensure survival and prosperity. To make these clear, they specified articles elaborating upon this Bill of Rights. Article 1. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Article 2. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Article 4. 
the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. Article 5. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Article 8. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Well, just look at some of the fines and punishments being inflicted for people not wearing masks or standing too close to each other. We are living in an insane time. Just insane. Limiting the influence of government while simultaneously guaranteeing the freedom of peaceful actions by its citizens was the entire intent of this revolutionary new nation's charter. As the first such attempt to enshrine rational human rights in a structure of government, it's not surprising that the U.S. Constitution was also flawed. Its primary deficiency, which for example allowed slavery to exist, and which today allows misguided affirmative action programs, is in a lack of consistency in modeling the legislative and judicial arms, allowing the politicians the opportunity to pass legislation in direct defiance of the Constitution. In framing our Canadian Constitution, we have the opportunity to incorporate the essential soundness of the principles of the American Charter while learning from its technical faults. But in order to do this, we must approach the creation of our Constitution as a document based on the principle of freedom rather than of obedience. A Canadian Constitution that relies on regional or federal standards of obedience with multiple dangerous interpretations left open guarantees a rocky road ahead. We need our rights defined uniformly so that no Canadian is required to sacrifice their language, work, money, thought, or life to the whim of any government. A Canadian charter must include a limit on taxation at all levels and a prohibition of government deficit financing, censorship, and laws interfering with lifestyles. A constitution is the cornerstone of a stable, citizen-oriented nation. Let the Trudeau government earn its right to govern by proposing a mandate to which we are entitled. A mandate for freedom, end quote. Wow, did that ever say it all. And of course, we got the exact opposite out of Trudeau's constitution. Now, for her part, Ayn Rand had this to say about the American constitution. Quote, Today, when a concerted effort is made to obliterate this point, it cannot be repeated too often that the constitution is a limitation on the government, not on private individuals, that it does not prescribe the conduct of private individuals, only the conduct of the government, that it is not a charter for government power, but a charter of the citizens' protection against the government. But Canada's patriated constitution, such as it is, was the exact opposite of the American counterpart, although it was worded in such a way as to create the illusion that Canadians have freedoms and rights similar to those of Americans. But not so. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom, signed by Pierre Elliott Trudeau in 1981, rather than being a limit on the powers of government, is a list of the freedoms, plural, that Canadians purportedly have and do not have. 
While its opening preamble reads, whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was so designed as to recognize the supremacy of the state and the rule of men. Remember that principle we highlighted earlier on, that the rule of law is meant to distinguish it from the rule of men. And the supremacy of God in this context is meant to indicate that our individual rights are inalienable and do not originate by the permission of others. They are, to cite Salim Mansour in our own conversation of last week, God-given or the product of our natural condition. The Charter contains 34 numbered clauses spread throughout 12 broad sections. And I have on past broadcasts aired many years ago, elaborated on many of the contradictions and fundamental flaws of the Charter, which, after all, was brought to us by a full-fledged communist, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. For example, under the mobility rights section, the Charter refers to, quote, reasonable residency requirements as a qualification for the receipt of publicly provided social services, end quote. The fact that state-funded social services are even mentioned in a nation's charter or constitution is a glaring admission that the state is fundamentally socialist or communist, and that some people will be forced to provide for others, which would require a violation of rights somewhere in that chain of events. And of course, this is magnified in the infamous section called Equality Rights, which speaks to the very perversion of the term equality that Salim Mansour and I discussed on the show last week, how equality, or rights, have been turned into equity of outcome, measured in economic terms and rights violating privileges. Section 15, subsection 1, every individual is equal before and under the law and has the right to the equal protection and equal benefit of the law without discrimination and, in particular, without discrimination based on race, national or ethnic origin, color, religion, sex, age, or mental or physical disability. Then there's subsection 2. Subsection 1 does not preclude any law, program, or activity that has as its objective the amelioration of conditions of disadvantaged individuals or groups, including those that are disadvantaged because of race, national or ethnic origin, color, religion, sex, age, or mental or physical disability, end quote. So basically, subsection 2 totally obliterates subsection 1, granting the government the power to ameliorate conditions of some collective at the expense of individuals everywhere in the country. Subsection 1 is the more correct application of the concept of equality, before and under the law. Subsection 2 is the corrupted concept of equality, being defined as equity, and equality of outcome, the very danger that Salim warned us about last week. So what might look good on paper at first glance in practice proves to have little resemblance to what most people would think are legitimate protections of their rights and freedom. All of which brings us back to the never-ending and ever-continuing so-called COVID crisis. Apparently, all it requires to wipe out centuries of established and acknowledged rights and legal principles is the threat of a flu virus. As Robert Vaughn pointed out to Maxime Bernier during their discussion on Just Rights video platforms a week or so ago, the comments of the New Brunswick Justice Minister, as quoted in the local county paper, the King's County record, and in reference to the COVID tyranny, were as follows, quote, We can't have a whole lot of people suing public safety and the government because their rights were infringed. And they were. There's no mistake about it. That's exactly what they were, end quote. 
Well, if so, then that's an admission of guilt on the part of the perpetrator, someone who should not merely be subject to lawsuits, but to imprisonment as well. After all, the violations of rights caused many people to be imprisoned for merely exercising the so-called protected rights and freedoms our government and officials are obligated to respect and uphold, which are all spelled out in their supposedly grand constitution. Tyranny, anyone? And earlier, of course, we heard MP Michael Chong raise the issue of government that continues to defy four orders of the House in the investigation of serious breaches at the Winnipeg Lab, a government that is in contempt of Parliament. And quite coincidentally, that very issue was among the issues raised by Salim Mansour in his discussion with Mark Friesen on Mark's own June 26th show. Talking about the government, I mean, the government of Louis Saint Laurent, including until uh, Lester Pearson, one would say, was a government that was devoted to Canada. It was a nationalist government. That is, with Pierre Elliott Trudeau, we begin the drift towards the globalist Marxist direction where we have arrived. And so there is this story breaking right now as you and I are speaking. The, the Speaker of the House of Commons is willing to go to the court to say that you right. have, the courts have no business to interfere in the demand of the Speaker and the House of Commons to get the full documents on the Chinese virologists that were taken out of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Safety Lab 4, uh, and then expelled from Canada. What is the story? We need to know because there is enough, again, suspicion that they were part of the same scheme for, you know, working on gain-of-function research with coronavirus. And here it is, the prime minister and his cabinet using the court to stop the speaker who controls the parliament and in that sense represents us, the people in the House of Commons, that is the House of the People, to find out the facts, to get the evidence. The fact Which that can only lead you to believe that they're tied into this. Yeah, so the, the fact that they don't want to give the evidence, they don't want to release the evidence, goes to show that they must be deeply involved in what we suspect. Yep, 100%. At this moment, it is so, so, so interesting. And the similar image is in Canada. But you have the special advisor to President Biden at the moment in the White House, a man by the name of Mike Donilon. Mike Donilon is the younger brother of Tom Donilon, who was a national security advisor to President Obama. Tom Donilon is the chief executive officer and chairman of BlackRock. BlackRock is the largest investment management company in the world. Its asset management is in excess of $9 trillion. They are the people who, in a sense, are behind World Economic Forum. Now, Tom Donilon is the chairman now. His younger brother, is a special advisor, Mike Donilon, to President Biden. Tom Donilon's wife 
Christine Russell is Biden's senior White House personal director. That means anyone working in the White House hired by Biden or whoever is pulling the string behind Biden, that is Obama and people, they have to come from the same group of people with similar ideas that will be given the green light by Tom Donilon, Mike Donilon, Tom Donilon's wife, Christian Russell. Then there is Sarah Russell, who is Tom Donilon's daughter. Sarah Donilon is a key member of the National Security Council in the White House. So it's all in the family. It's all in the family operating, same as it is with the power corporation in Canada. Chrétien's daughter is married to André Demeray, who was the son of Paul Demeray, the senior, the founder. All the prime minister, whether conservative or liberal, they've all been working for Paul Demeray and his power corporation, which is the largest conglomerate in Canada, whose money and influence comes out of China. They control the entire who's who about China and Canada relationship. This is this is the situation we are in, you know. So the people, they go and they vote for liberals and they vote for the conservative and they vote for the NDP. NDP, Bob Ray was the premier of Ontario. His brother, John Ray, older brother, John Ray, was a member of the board of Power Corporation. And then Bob Ray moved from NDP to the Liberal. So there you have it. You have Paul Martin, who was a member of the Power Corporation. He became the president of Canada Shipping Line that was basically owned by Power Corporation. Maurice Strong was a longtime player in Power Corporation, ended up, you know, managing and running the United Nations uh, Climate Change Summit and ended up in China, where he now lies buried, possibly underneath Mao Zedong. <laughs> and, and, and there you have it, full circle. And and so this is why I say, Salim, everything that we've talked about tonight is context to understanding COVID. I mean, when you look at it in these terms, COVID seems so small in, in comparison to what's coming. And when you connect these dots, that it's helpful. And we see it at town halls all the time that the light bulbs go on. People, it's like, okay, now it makes sense, right? So unfortunately we're the voices that are connecting the dots for people and we're just not as loud as we need to be or or can be well isn't it isn't it interesting that if if we were really a free country a democratic country then the conversation you and i are having would be taking place in the mainstream media what the mainstream media is talking is to disguise obscure and destroy the actual facts but then the other side of the problem is that the people, if they don't see the story in Globe and Mail or in Toronto Star or on CBC, they think that the story doesn't exist. So then, you know, what you and I are talking about, because it is not in the Globe and Mail, it is not in the New York Times, it is not in the Washington Post, then, you know, we are conspiracy theorists. It is difficult to overstate the stupidity of the average citizen in the context of being a citizen with regard to civics, politics, governance, voting, and democracy. 
Few ever even make an effort to inform themselves, to become informed voters and citizens instead of just blindly voting for and supporting those financed by a handful of unelected power brokers whose consistent agenda is to move politics to the left. And after having heard Salim connect the dots showing how power is concentrated all in the family, I am once again reminded of the principle stated in our previous Yes Minister audio bite. Power goes with permanence, and impermanence is impotence. And in Canada, how ironic, because you can't get more ironic than this, the company yielding political power is literally called the Power Corporation. Hello? (laughs) Most of the things most people believe or quote-unquote know about any of these things are things that just ain't so. That's because they trust the corporate news media, the same media run by the same power brokers. I've addressed this knowledge of what ain't so as being the greatest dangers to our lives in common. Nothing could illustrate this more vividly than our current COVID fiction pandemic, which has become a veritable religion to an alarmingly large number of people. They are a huge part of the problem that must be understood in order to help us conceptualize the tyranny that has descended upon us. And in the few moments I have left, let's quickly conceptualize the opposite of tyranny, freedom. And who better to do that than Ayn Rand, who wrote, quote, What is the basic, the essential, the crucial principle that differentiates freedom from slavery, it is the principle of voluntary action versus physical coercion or compulsion. Freedom, in a political context, has only one meaning, the absence of physical coercion. If I were to speak your kind of language, I would say that man's only moral commandment is, thou shalt think. But a moral commandment is a contradiction in terms. The moral is the chosen, not the forced, the understood, not the obeyed. The moral is the rational, and reason accepts no commandments. Since knowledge, thinking, and rational action are properties of the individual, since the choice to exercise his rational faculty or not depends on the individual, man's survival requires that those who think be free of the interference of those who don't. So what do you think is the secret to happiness? I believe it is never to argue with stupid people. Well, I have to disagree with you on that one. Yes, you're absolutely right. (laughs) So with that sobering thought in mind, no arguments, please. I hereby order you to think about joining us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. You have a considerable talent for making things unintelligible, Minister. I beg your pardon. No, no, I mean that as a compliment, I assure you. Blurring the issue is one of the basic ministerial skills. Oh. What are the others? Delaying decisions, dodging questions, juggling figures, bending facts and concealing errors. But Humphrey, if these revelations are true... Ah, exactly, Minister, if... You could, for instance, have discussed the nature of truth. The committee isn't the least bit interested in the nature of truth. They're all MPs. (laughs) Well, you could have said it was a security matter. How can HB pencils be a security matter? Depends what you write with them. 
Sorry? And what about Rhodes' proposals for buying stationery? Why didn't we accept them? Yes, sir, the man was a troublemaker and a crank. He had an unhealthy obsession with efficiency and economy. But why didn't we adopt his proposals? It would have saved millions of pounds. Yes, but it would have meant a lot of work to implement it. So? Taking on a lot more staff. Oh, Humphrey. Well, disprove it. I can't, obviously. Exactly. You're making it up, aren't you? Of course. <laughs> why? <laughs> As an example of how to handle a select committee. <laughs>